0: Welcome to the United Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith, founder of United Basketball Clinics. I hope in this podcast you will gain some knowledge that will help you grow as a leader and a coach. Now, let's grow the game together. As we continue the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast, one thing I'm excited about is having a variety of coaches and different topics being discussed. We are very honored to have a special guest today, Coach Jim Boone, one of the most respected coaches in the game and one of the best teachers of the Pac-Line defense which has taken basketball by storm the last several years. If you run pack line are interested in the pack line or maybe you face teams that run the pack line this podcast will be very educational for you. I'm looking forward to hearing what Coach has to share with us today. I want to welcome Coach Jim Boone, the head coach at University of Arkansas Fort Smith. How you doing, sir? Coach, I'm doing great.
1: Uh, awesome to be here and share this time with you today. How are you?
0: Doing well, Uh, just staying as busy as possible, going on a bunch of three-mile walks a day. uh, You sound like me. (laughs) Yeah, doing a lot of walking, a lot of yard work, a lot of grilling, and basketball stuff as well. So it's good to be home more with the family, but I'm ready to get out and have normal life and hopefully some summer basketball. That's my hope.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, uh, the thing I miss the most is getting in the gym and being with our guys. I really miss my team. You know, we've been able to connect through through uh uh zoom and through facetime and through phone but it's just uh it's just not the same as being there on the court with your with your guys but uh this too shall pass this is uh obviously we're we're doing a great job here as a society to flatten this curve and get back in there sooner so we're 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 excited when we get that chance
0: Yeah. I I feel like whenever we're able to get in, my phone's going to be blowing up. Kids want to get in the gym early morning, late night, get shots up, play, have open gym. I mean, kids are going to want to be active and you know what? Their parents are going to want them active too, getting out of the house a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it'll be here before we know it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll, I uh, have a lot of lessons we've learned during this time, and hopefully some of the good habits we've started, we, we will continue. But, well, Coach, let's dive into some pack line defense. Uh, you are one of the most respected coaches in the game, period, but especially in your area of teaching defense, and you've been a Pac-Line coach for many years, and clinics, DVDs, you are one of the go-to coaches with this. A uh, first question is, when did you decide to go to pack line and what led you to becoming a pack line coach? Because I, I know, hearing you speak in the past, you used to be more up the line, in the line, more pressure. That's a
1: great question, uh, Matt. And I'll tell you what—you're um, exactly right. And just to digress here a little bit, I was uh, my first head coaching job was at California University of Pennsylvania, a Division II school, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, we inherited a program that was coming off of a uh, uh a losing season, five wins. Anyway, to make a long story short, we jumped right in. We had a we we inherited a really good roster. We inherited a great group of young men. And even though they went through a challenging year the year before, they had grown up quite a bit. And so our philosophy at that time as you mentioned was we we were up the line, on the line, we denied every inch of the court. We switched all like screens And it was really good for us. And I was there for 10 years and we were very successful. And sometimes I feel like maybe we were successful in spite of ourselves. And what I mean by that is we got to later years, year six, year seven, year eight, in our tenure, the thing we began to notice was that teams in our league, especially, we were not able to turn them over (laughs) <laughs> excuse me, as much as we had done earlier. And there were there were two factors from that. Consequently, because we weren't able to turn them over, uh, it led to us having to defend them uh, in the half court. And our defense was actually creating offense for our opponent because of our pressure and because of their ability to put the ball on the floor, which I'll get to in a minute. The second residual effect from that was we weren't getting the runouts from the steals that we were getting early on in our career, and so we weren't getting some of those easy buckets, and we were having to run offense, which is something that we weren't accustomed to doing, particularly after going through a non conference schedule where we were able to turn people over and get easy buckets so that really got us thinking, but as I said, we were being We were having a great deal of success, and we went to two final fours. We had a team that was ranked number one in the country, Um, and we were ranked like in the top 20 for five or six consecutive years. So what happened was we started toying with the idea of what if we didn't pressure the wings as much and deny, and we left those guys in help, but it was not a system of play. It was not a comprehensive uh, uh, system of play. It was just an idea. And we got to year 10, and I had turned down a couple of Division One jobs. And finally, I took the Robert Morris University job in Pittsburgh. The uh, We inherited a team that had had seven consecutive losing seasons. And another, we inherited, again, a great roster of kids but not a very good team, uh, not, not a very good team at all. So I knew that we were going to have a, an extremely difficult time competing in the Northeast Conference if we were going to try to pressure everybody and get up and on the line and so on and so forth. As I mentioned earlier, uh, our, our defense was actually creating offense, and the rules had changed in such a way with the shot clock Teams have become much more – the game had changed. You know, and, and when I first started as a head coach, it was right towards the end of the game being more of an east-west game. We're going to make, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten passes, whatever it takes, reverse the ball side to side, and break the defense down and get a good shot. So, obviously, a disruptive defense was something that was extremely important. But now, all of a sudden, the game was starting to change with the advent of the three-point shot, the shot clock, the shot clock going from 45 to 35, where teams were more north-south. And when you got out there and really pressured the ball um, and you extended your, your defense, your wings into denial areas, All of a sudden, you were creating opportunities for the offense to get the ball to paint, to to create foul situations, to create mismatches on the boards to rebound. And it wasn't a good scenario. So we knew we could not play this way when we went to Robert Morris. So to make a long story short, uh, I had met Coach Bennett during the course of the summer after taking the Robert Morris job, Coach Dick Bennett on the recruiting trails and I'd ask him if I could come and watch their team practice. He had just taken, he was just completing his first year at Wisconsin. And obviously he was very gracious and said, you're more than welcome. You can come and watch us anytime you want. So I arranged that we practice the, uh, the first week when October 15th rolled around, which was our day back then. And on that Thursday, we went at 6 a.m. in the morning, and as soon as practice was over, I drove to Madison, Wisconsin. And I watched, uh, I watched Coach Ben and his staff uh, work on pack line defense and implementing it with their Wisconsin team on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I drove back to Robert Morris. And so that's when we first put the pack line in 25 years ago. Frankly, we were not very good at it. We were not very good teaching it. We didn't get it. We didn't understand it. We didn't understand the nuances of it. But through the years and through trial and error, you know, you become better when you have to. Uh, uh, You know, sometimes the, uh, what, what is that? The mother of invention. So along with that, and along with a lot of film and visitation with numerous coaches. Coach Bennett again, uh, 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 Mike Heideman, who was at Wisconsin Green Bay, who had been on Coach Bennett's staff. Mike was awesome. I spent a couple summers in Green Bay, and he he would just take me through it A to Z with film and notes and the whole nine yards. So, anyway, uh, I felt like once we got into probably our fifth year, sixth year, of running the defense, we we started being pretty good at teaching it. Now it doesn't take that long, you know. I'm I'm not your quickest guy. I'm not your best. I'm not your quickest learner. So, uh, but it was such a novel concept at the time, and was you know Coach Bennett was ahead of himself. He'll never say that, uh, but he was. And you know I I call Coach Bennett the father of the pac line defense. So everything that we put in. Uh, the foundation of our of our defensive play came from coach, but obviously we have added our tweaks and twists to it uh, throughout the years to make it our own.
0: So, man, that's really great. Thanks for the history lesson on that, where you began, what you used to do. So you obviously – you mentioned you had some misunderstandings uh, or it just takes a while to grasp grasp it completely. So if a coach is listening to the podcast right now, they're thinking about moving to pack line What are some misconceptions that are out there about pack line and what are some things that may be a struggle in the beginning as they implement this system? Because it's not overnight.
1: What I'd like to do first of all, Matt, is is talk about a little bit about philosophy, culture versus X's and O's and then get into what I feel we call the three secrets of the pack line defense. And they're not secrets, so to speak, but there are three things I think are critical to understanding how to become a better teacher of it and how to implement and develop the defense. What I meant when I said about uh, philosophy and culture is simply this: the pack line is not an X's and O's deal. It's really not, and everybody thinks you know it's drills, it's X's and O's. It's a pack line defense really gets back and being create packline line defense is about creating a defensive culture, and to create a defensive culture, it's about it's, it's about a mindset, a belief system. It's getting your, your team to understand, to believe, to buy in that you're going to win games on the defensive end of the floor and not trying to outscore people on the offensive end of the floor. And that's a little bit difficult in today's, in today's world. And I use the analogy because I'm always asked this question. Does it affect what you do offensively? And I think it definitely does. That's not to say there are outliers. You can certainly run pack line and run if you want to and play fast. But I feel like if you want to be the best pack line defense you can be and you want to have a defensive culture in place, then you need to run an offense which really values, uh, we call it sureness, taking care of the basketball and shot selection, and patience, and making the defense work. The analogy that I referred to is that of a football team. If you have a team, if you have a football team that's pass, 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 and they're three out, you know, three downs and out, three downs and out, three downs and out, and all of a sudden their defense is on the field for an elongated period of time, they wear down. Now, uh, I think that's why when you look in the NFL today, you know, the the really successful teams have a running game of some sort. So I think it's really really important that you have an offense that complements your defense and that we can go down and make you have to guard us for for uh deep into the shot clock. And then on the other hand, we're going to be really hard to score against and there's nothing that frustrates a team more than They've got to play defense, and then all of a sudden, they—if they go down and take a quick shot, they got to come right back down and play defense for a long time again, and that becomes a mental edge to your team. So again, it's about we're going to outlast. We're going to outlast the offense. So from there, uh, I think that's first of all, that's really important that you you understand that philosophical approach to it. And then from there, it gets down to um, I think there's some there, there's some key factors, and we say the three we call it the three secrets of the pack line defense. The first one is pressure on the ball. See, there's a great misconception out there that the pack line is a soft, sloughing, you know, defense more zone like, and it's anything but that. We want to be a grit and grind, blue collar, hard work. As physical as the officiating will allow us to be, that's who we want to be. Now, it starts with pressure on the basketball. And because we've got people in help and not out there denying, we feel that we can really get out and and heat up the basketball. How much pressure can you put on the ball? How, how, how deep, how much can you get into the ball with the person at your garden? And that comes down to your athleticism and skill level compared to the person that you're defending's athleticism and skill level. If the person you're defending is a lot quicker than you, you're going to have to back up just a little bit and create a little bit more cushion. We've had very few players that can really get up in somebody's grill, but if you have one of those guys that has the footwork and the the athleticism to do that, that's an awesome thing because we use the analogy, again, of football, you know, if you allow a Peyton Manning or a, uh, you know, uh, you know, any Tom Brady or you know any of the great quarterbacks uh, across the league, you know, the Brett Far's, the Aaron Rodgers, if you let those guys just just set back there in the pocket and with no pressure, they're going to pick you apart. So you got to do what football coaches do. You got to get them off their spot. You got to make them uncomfortable, and that's what we're trying to do with our pressure on the ball. Is is make the ball uncomfortable. So what does that come down to? Essentially it comes down to closeouts. And we are a firm believer in closing out with high hands, and we want two high hands. We want fingers above, fingers to the ceiling, elbows bent, hands between shoulders. Um I don't know why, but if if the elbows go straight, then the legs tend to go straight. And when that happens, you're you're just going to be blown by. But the high hands then allows us to close out a little bit shorter. So our terminology there is we wanna close out hard and short, we wanna sprint almost the entire way there in the last step or two break down into choppy steps so we're ready to absorb the dribble and we're a little bit short with a little bit of cushion between us and the ball handler. But by having our high hands, hopefully we are taking away any opportunity or at least the illusion for an open shot, or a pass, and possibly we can get a deflection with a pass. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, your position is your help. And this is the one, frankly, that I didn't I didn't really get. You know, Chuck Daly, the great Hall of Fame coach that coached the Detroit Pistons for years and was our dream team coach in the Olympics. You know, Coach Daly always said, Uh, You don't get beat on the help. You get beat on the recovery. And so here we were. We're out there trying to deny and then come to help and then change momentum and go back to recover. And really, when you think about it and you watch it, it's almost an impossibility to be able to do that. You just have to be better than the other team to be able to do that. So. We decided to eliminate denial, and therefore we would put our guys already positioned in help. So, our four non ball defenders must be in the pack line. For us, the pack line is a 16 foot semicircle, and we have left it at that even with the advent and the increase of the three point line. It's a 16 foot semicircle. We have three rules for those uh, off ball defenders. Rule number one, and and, I don't get caught up in a lot of rules, but I think defensively you need to have absolutes. Offensively, it can be principles. But defensively, we don't want any – we want to eliminate the gray area. Gray area creates excuses, and we don't want to give our players any opportunity for an excuse on the defensive end of the floor. So our rules are simply I want two feet in the pack line within that semicircle, or circle I should say, two feet in there, the, the arc, the 16-foot arc, in a slightly close stance. That's one. Number two, I want my defensive player to be closer to the ball than, than the man he is guarding is to the ball. So the defender will be closer to the ball. And number three, maintain vision with both ball and man. So two feet in the pack, slightly closed stance, closer to the ball than the man you're guarding, and maintain vision with both man and ball. So by doing that, that essentially allows us to put, greater, uh, put a greater emphasis on pressure on the ball. The second thing is it allows us to get the shooters. And one of the questions we always get is do you give up a lot of open threes? And traditionally, our defense is usually in the top three, if not number one in our league, and more often than not, is in the top ten in the country in defensive field goal percentage. And the reason being is because we don't have to go to help and then – recover. We're already in help. So as the ball starts to come to us and then it's passed, we're immediately recovering with with our high hands. So that's number two. And then number three is just the realization that, look, we're not going to keep a good offensive team from getting shots. They're going to get shots. But what we can do is we can influence the type of shot. So how how do you do that? Well, I think there are three things that we have direct control over as coaches. Conversion defense. That's the number – it all starts right there. That's where your defense starts, getting back on defense. Um, If we can get five guys back and set waiting on the offense, then we're going to have a much better opportunity to be successful than if we're trying to play transition defense in transition. The second thing is the low post. And we should be able to take the low post away as we're protecting the lane. And the third thing for us is defensive rebounding. And inherently the pack line defense because of our positioning concepts puts us in a much better position to rebound defensively than if we were extending our defense. We have eliminated rotations Cause one of our tenants is, and we have, we have, uh, you know, six or seven, know your nose. There are things that are non-negotiables for us that we absolutely will not allow our opponent to do. And we let's, let's put it this way. We're going to work really hard not to let them do it. Now, um, I'd like to share those with you if we have time to do that. Um, great. The, there, and, and again, there's seven things that we, we, we think are really important. And here's the deal. It, it's more, <laughs> it's a paramount importance that our team understands them and that when I ask our team that they know what those seven, those seven deals are. The first one for us is no paint. We say the ball gets in the paint. That's nine one one code red. And, um, uh, you know, you, uh, There better be consequences. You're either going to block a shot, get a steal, a deflection, uh, take a charge, and worst-case scenario, foul. But we're not letting you score layups, and we're not letting you get the ball to paint, hence being two feet in the pack. The second thing that that we want to work really hard to do is no baseline. And the reason that we have no baseline, is we want to eliminate uh, rotations. If I'm going to force the ball baseline, now my post player's got to come out and leave that post and stop the ball. And conce- you know, conceptually what's going to happen then is that the, uh, the help side post player's going to have to rotate over and help the helper on the ball side post. And now we're going to have to have a guard probably rotate down to help that helper in the – Advent that there was a shot, so essentially what happens is we force them into a bad shot, maybe an off-balance tough shot over a bigger defender. but But really, we're helping the offense because we're trying to block out with a five, ten, six foot guard on um, possibly a you know six seven six eight six nine post player, and I'm yelling, "Hey, Johnny, block out! Johnny's blocking out!" He lost that battle before it started. So we don't want it for that reason, and we also don't want the foul. So a lot of guys will say, well, that's just you force middle. And I say, no, we don't force middle. We're not forcing middle. It's amazing. I'll speak, and then one of the first questions I'll get afterwards is, so, Coach, uh, you force the ball middle. No, we don't force it middle. We want to be square with the ball, with, uh, with the back of our head, the spine of our back is facing the rim. and We tell our guys, you can't get beat baseline, but you are not funneling or forcing the ball to the middle. You're doing everything you can to work to keep the ball in front of you.
0: Since one of your rules is absolutely don't let the ball go baseline, and yet you're not forcing the middle, what are some techniques you teach your players for on-the-ball defense? You've mentioned being square with your spine in the back of your head, but are there any other specific things that you teach your players in order to guard the ball correctly?
1: Well, as we as we mentioned, we want to be square uh, and not forcing. And a lot of guys will say, uh, "Well, if you're not forced it one way or another, and the offense can go out of the way, you're at a disadvantage." And I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, so let's start first with our feet. If if I'm guarding someone who's a lot quicker than I am, then I can have my my baseline foot just outside of his baseline foot but I still want to maintain a square stance. I want to have a little bit of cushion. We tell our defensive player that there is a, you use your imagination, there is a glass wall, a glass window pane, if you will, between you and the offensive player. We want your hands on the glass. I do not want you to reach and lunge through the glass because then that's going to create an off-balance scenario where you're not square and you're going to give up an easy drive. If the offensive player has the ball above his waist, then we want to have our hands higher, at least one. And we are always – and this is after we've closed out with two high hands. Now we break down to our stance. We want to have a hand above ball at all times. If we can keep a hand above ball, that, that puts a little bit of heat on that that offensive player, not only passing, but getting a quick shot off because we're right there ready to contest. Um, so our hands are on the glass. Now, if he brings the ball to his waist or below, he's obviously gonna dribble it, or he's gonna be looking to make a bounce pass into the post, and we use a term we call jump back. We wanna jump back about a half a step. Now, a big key there is is when you jump back, stay square. Don't jump back and now get at an angle, stay square. So, if he brings the ball back up, then you come back up with a hand above ball, keeping that glass wall between the two of you. Now, a very important teaching point for us is simply this. If he puts the ball on the floor and starts to beat you, then we don't want to ride his hip and escort him to the rim or to the baseline or to the middle. We use the terminology, get off, and get ahead. Get off of him and sprint to get back ahead and reestablish a square stance. And lastly, we'll tell all of our defenders, and we teach this with a lot of um we'll do one on one full court lane slides like a lot of guys do, some two on two full court lane slides, uh two and two full court seal the gap. And then I think Matt, it's really imperative that you play a lot of one on one and not just where you're handing the ball to somebody and letting them go. But where you're putting your players in positions where they have to close out in a game-like scenario, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you put um, put, a, put a ball screen in the drill, and the guy's rolling, and now you've got to tag him with that corner defender, and then the corner's lifting. So after you tag, you've got to close out. Now we're playing live one-on-one. Now we'll limit it. We'll go one or no dribble, which now we're really working on contesting shots. We'll go two or no dribbles. We'll go three or no dribbles, and we'll go unlimited dribbles. And the ability to limit the dribbles allows you to emphasize what you're trying to do. For instance, one or no dribbles, that's really an emphasis, again, on contesting shots. Two dribbles is very much like you're going to have to guard in a a game scenario uh, where you've got to help defender in the gap. And if you give them three dribbles, it's just where you're trying to really emphasize that, hey, you could be overgapped here and you cannot let the ball beat you. And we want to keep the ball in front of us and influence a contested shot. So, again, we can't, we can't keep you from getting shots. But what we're trying to do is force you into contested twos.
0: How low do you like your players to get on defense? Do you have a standard for that, or do you leave it up to each player and their own individual athleticism and body type?
1: We want them to get in a in a low wide stance, and that's all we say. We want. I think that um, we want you to spread out and get as big as you can get, and that's not only in guarding the basketball. I want our pack line defenders that are in the pack. I want them spread out with their hands up, so that we can create the illusion that there is no space in that lane. There's nothing there for you. Um, I agree with you totally. The low man wins, and and the lower you can get, the better. Uh, But I think balance kind of preempts that. And, and, you know, some guys can get lower than others. Some guys can't. But I do think this, the two best friends you can have as a defender is space and movement. You need a little bit of space between you and the ball, and you've got to keep your feet live. It's like the tennis player getting ready to return a serve. If, you, uh, if you've got your feet in concrete, they're going to serve it by you all day long. You've got to have those feet moving and ready to get to the next thing. And that's how we want to be defensive. It doesn't have to be over-exaggerated, but you just got to have live feet. So th- those are our basic tenets in regards to our footwork and guarding needs. That was, that was number two, no baseline. No, number three is we don't want to give up any rhythm threes. And, again, that comes down to closeouts with high hands that we've already talked about. Number four is no direct drives. That, again, comes down to closeouts and being hard and short and ready to jump back if the ball's being ready to dribble or put it, put it on the floor. The, um, we just tell our guys simply this. You've got to be able to guard three feet to your left and three feet to your right. Guard your yard. Guard your yard. And there's nothing wrong with drop stepping, and when we take that jump back, that's what we're doing. We drop step and then reestablish square position. If you fake, so if you jab at me with your right foot, then I'm going to drop step with my left foot and square back up. And then if you want to recover and shoot, so be it. I'm going to contest the heck out of that shot because I've got my hands, a hand above ball already. Let's see. That's four. Number five, number five would be no fast break layups. And, you know, that gets back to what we talked about in the, uh, just a couple of minutes ago in regards to one of the things you have control over as a coach is conversion defense. We're going to always have a minimum of two guys getting back on the rise of the shot. So when the shot goes up, we got two guys getting back. we got one getting to the rim, one getting to the top of the key. And when I say the rim, you're getting to the restricted circle. So whoever gets to the restricted circle, you're then going to gravitate to the ball side lane line, whichever side the ball is coming down to so that you're taking away anybody flashing into the post, and then you're ready to recover to that wing. The person that's getting to the top of the key, his job is to then uh, gravitate out to the heat-up line where he can stop the ball, guard the ball. My other three guys are going to glass to rebound. And their job is to go, no matter where they're located on on the offensive end, when that shot goes up, you go hunt that shot and go after it to rebound it. Now, you don't get it and our opponent secures the rebound, then you're turning to sprint back like your hair is on fire. And we've already made this decision. You're sprinting to paint first because we're taking the lane away. You're not sprinting to men, you're not, You're sprinting to paint. We don't want a my man mentality. Our idea is stop the ball first because the ball scores, not the, my, the man. So guys ask me, well, do you flip-flop those roles on who your get-back guys are and who your rebounders? And we don't like to do that. So. Basically, I'll take our team after a week or so of practice and say, okay, you're a get-back guy, you're a get-back guy, you're a rebounder, you're a rebounder, you're a get-back guy, you're a get-back guy, you're a get-back guy. So you say, well, through substitution, what's going to happen? Well, we put, potentially we could have four or five get-back guys in the lineup. Fine. Shot goes up, we've got five guys getting back. Next one, no, um, no second shots, no offensive rebounds. And, you know, Matt, here's the deal. I think in Division One basketball, the first shot field goal percentage, when you take out, you know, second shots, run out layups, out of bounds under, those kind of things, and it's just the offensive team come down and run their offense, when you can take those things away, the offensive team shoots somewhere between 39 and 42%. Well, if you can limit them, if you can get back and take away that initial thrust and layups through conversion, and you can do a good job of blocking out and not allowing the second shot. You've greatly enhanced your opportunities for victory. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're, um, you know, we we teach hit. We want to make contact and then block out, find the ball, go get the ball. Some guys like to just hit and go get it. Some guys are just sight and go go track the ball, go get the ball. (coughs) I don't care what you do. But you better teach something and you better emphasize defensive rebounding because there's nothing that equates to winning from an analytical standpoint greater than defensive rebounding. The teams that rebound are the teams that win. And there's two things. If you and I let our team go out here without us being there uh, and play pickup, there's two things I promise you they're not going to do. They're not going to block out, and they're not going to get back on defense. That's just left to their own devices. They don't do those things. So those are things that we have to emphasize and we have to coach. Um, And then finally, the last thing is uh, we don't want to foul. And that's not to contradict the first one that, you know, if you get the ball to paint and you're scoring a layup and we can't take a charge or get a steal or deflection or – block a shot, that we're going to foul. That's a last resort measure, But we don't want to foul. We want to make more free throws than our opponent shoots. We want to be in the bonus first. And we want to do everything through practice and emphasis as we can to not foul. Hence, that's one of the reasons that we teach the glass glass pane, the glass window pane between us and, and the offensive player to try and do our best to give our players the illustration of something that they can, a picture they can put in their mind that we don't want to reach and lunge and grab because those things lead to fouls. They lead to off-balance drives, which then lead to fouls, and we don't want to foul. So I think those know-your-nos are really important, not only that we know them, but our team understands them as we try to to get to the point where we influence the type of shot, understanding we're not going to keep you from getting shots.
0: We'll be right back to the interview in just a few moments. But first, I want to thank you for listening to the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to have you write us a review. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or about United Basketball Clinics, you could follow us on Twitter at United underscore clinics, or you could visit our website at unitedbasketballclinics.com. That's great information, Coach. We as coaches must always know what we will and will not tolerate on defense. Now, I want to take a closer look at the gap defender, the footwork. What if I'm guarding a higher three-point shooter in my area than my man opposite? Am I always committed to the same gap spacing, or does it depend on my defensive assignment?
1: Those are great questions. Um, Let's start with just your basic positioning in the gap. And so our listeners can see this in their mind's eye. Let's put the ball at the uh, at the top, right at the, you know, at the top of the key. And so we're defending as we're facing the basket. Our defender is guarding the right wing. So if I'm guarding the right wing, I'm going to have two feet in the pack. I'm probably going to have my right foot on the pack line. And I'm going to be slightly closed, which means my right foot is going to be on the pack line and my left foot is going to be a little bit lower than my right foot. The reason that we teach it in that way is if that ball is driven, let's say a right hand drive from that top, from the top into that gap that I'm already in, I'm already in help. I'm gonna help stop the ball with my near arm, which is my right arm, and my near leg, which is my right leg. I don't wanna go flat, so to speak, like I'm taking a charge with my chest to the drive. And the reason I don't wanna do that is I become a blind helper. I can't see my man now back cutting. I can't see my man sliding down to the corner. I lose vision. And remember, one of our tenets is that we want you to maintain vision with both ball and man. So by being in a slightly closed stance and helping with near arm, near leg, right arm, right leg, I can see both man and ball. The second part of that – well, let me, let me say this before I get to the second part. And we always tell our players, if your man back cuts you, then you leave the ball and you take the back cut, always, because we're not giving up layups. And that's why we're teaching that ball defender, if you start to get beat where we have to have a gap defender give help, then your job is to get off the ball and sprint to get ahead of the ball. You're not letting somebody else take it. You're sprinting to get ahead. So I don't know if our listeners can see that in their mind. Matt, if you can see that. But if I'm in my gap and now I'm in help, I'm already there, and he starts to beat my defender with the ball, and but that defender's getting off and sprinting to get ahead, and now my man starts a back cut, I'm going to take the back cut away, but my ball defender's going to get back and be squared up with him to take his drive away. So it's right. a coordination between the two. And conversely, if the ball is driven right-handed, but my – my, um, my guy that's guarding the ball is in good position and maintaining that position on the ball, I'm repositioning in my gap. I'm not staying right there. So if my uh, wing starts to drift down to the corner, I'm getting a little bit deeper in my help. I don't have to be all the way up there at the elbow again. And now when the pass is made, I am pushing off my right foot hard and I'm taking a step lower. And the reason I'm doing that is because if I make a direct line closeout to my man, then he's just going to blow it right by me. We call it seeking leverage. By getting lower, I'm seeking leverage for my closeout. And you say, well, it's kind of, you're, you're taking an extra step to get there. That's fine. I'd rather take an extra step to get there and be there a little bit late. You know, I don't want to be there, right? But if if I'm going to be there, I'd rather be there late than to give a direct line, direct drive opportunity up to my man. Right.
0: And more than likely, he's, you're also giving up baseline too because you're moving in toward his left shoulder. Absolutely. So he's going to attack baseline, the big leaves. Now you're back in that rotation. So you'd rather give up – I guess that's a great time to give up a contested shot.
1: Absolutely. Now, um, then it comes down to closeouts. And this gets to your question of, on one side, I've got a 45% three-point shooter. On the other side, I've got a 29% three-point shooter. We don't like to switch. We want to maintain the integrity of our matchups. And that is why. One of the things I found when I was at California University of Pennsylvania, um, and we switched all like screens, I thought it was really hard that I'm – in my scouting report, I know that my assignment is to guard John. And John is a terrific three-point shooter that I've got to chase off the arc. And now all of a sudden I switch a screen that I'm guarding Billy. And Billy Dagon can't shoot a lick, but that sucker can put it on the floor and drive it like no other. And I better close out a little shorter to him. And to be able to do that in the heat of the battle, that's really difficult. So... We don't want to switch if we can avoid it. And therefore, scouting, individual scouting, becomes really important to us. I'm not caught up in the plays you run, but we are caught up in your individuals and what their abilities are. And so we've outlined three distinct closeouts for our players. And we call them um, after NBA guys and probably need to change these names because over the years – you know, we've called him a Kobe closeout, which is a straight-up closeout. That's a guy that can do both. He can shoot it or drive it, and that's one we will not change. I think he is a perfect example of that. A Ray Allen closeout, a guy that shoots threes, and you got to get him off the arc because he's not real good at driving it and finishing. And so that's a – dead we call that a dead three, but for our players we call it a Ray Allen closeout you got to get right up under his chin. You can't let him have room to shoot. You want to make him drive it. And then finally, we called him Rondo closeout, Uh, Rajon Rondo, who is uh, primarily a driver, particularly when he first came into the league. And so our players understand that. They can visualize that. We want to close out hard and very short to him. And so that becomes a key factor in knowing who you're guarding, you have to know his game, and I go back to Rick Majerus' tenant. You know, Coach Majerus is one of the all-time great teachers, and he really stressed the importance that you have to know who you are and what your game is, and who you're defending and what their game is. And so, um, we want to be able to execute one of those three closeouts as per who we're guarding. Now, I will say this: if 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 we're guarding a player who's just a great scorer and he primarily does that off the drive, then we will will emphasize pinching our gaps closer to him to make him give the ball up and not have opportunities to go one-on-one and create a shot. And conversely, if we're guarding that great three-point shooter, I can cheat a half a step or a step out of my gap towards him so I have a closer uh, distance to close out on the pass. But I'm still gap-oriented, if that makes sense. I still must have a gap presence.
0: No, that makes sense. And a term coaches use a lot, and I've said it, and I don't think I did a good job explaining it, was, hey, we need to run that player off the line. That was your Ray Allen closeout. Like, you want to get so close to him, you want to make him put it on the floor and then make a play that they're probably not going to be very good at.
1: Yes. And – our way of doing that is, remember, we don't want to give up baseline, but we want right. to close up right under right, – we just tell him, you better get right under his chin. Get right into him and get under his chin and and make him uncomfortable where he doesn't have a shot and he's got to put the ball on the floor. Now, once he puts starts to put the ball down, you need to jump back and get off and get ahead to square back up with him. And remember, this is a guy that's much better catch and shoot, not catch, dribble, and shoot. So right. that's part of our philosophy in making him put it on the floor.
0: No, that's good. Can we dive into some low post defense? Absolutely.
1: Whatever you need.
0: And, and do you ever – I also want to talk about do you ever double down? Do you double the the offensive player on the catch? We can talk into your technique first and then move to that. Yes,
1: Uh, our base way of guarding the low, first of all, in defending the low pulse, we're three quarter on top. We do not want to allow any feeds from the top. We want, and when we say three quarter on top, we want our chin. We want our chin in front of the top shoulder. So the top shoulder being the shoulder closest to the free throw, let's put our low post player posted up on the side of the lane. Uh, so we want our, our chin to be above his top shoulder. In front of his top shoulder, we want our top hand to be extended, arm extended, palm out, thumb down in denial. We want to take our lower hand and arm and ball up our fist and use an arm bar in the post side. And we want to ball our fist up so that we can take away any, um, you know, want to or 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 accidental grabbing of his jersey, which would create a foul chance. So we're in that denial position. Now that inherently makes it difficult for the pass to go in because remember, we're not giving up baseline and now we're three quarter on top. So that becomes a difficult pass. But if the ball goes in there, our post player then must immediately slide behind. We don't want to give up any angles to that low post player. And Our basic rule of thumb is to have his chin on his baseline or just inside his baseline shoulder with about a six-inch cushion, six- to eight-inch cushion between him and you, and you need to be in a low, wide, high-hand stance so that he can't use your body to spin off of you baseline, because we're not giving up baseline, or to use his body to roll into the middle and spin off of you that you're able to absorb that and then wall him up, which our idea of walling up is just you're going to put your chest on him with both hands extended, high and elbows locked, fingers to the ceiling, hands back. Um, I should say not fingers to the ceiling, hands back, arms straight, hands back. And the reason we have hands back is we don't want to get our hands coming down on the ball, which then could be a foul. Now, our any good low post defense is going to be a marriage – between the perimeter defenders and the low post defender. The perimeter defenders, their pressure on the ball is the very first thing. You've got to be able to pressure the ball and help to deter that pass in there. If the pass is made, our base way of defending the low post we call it choke and dig. So when the pass goes in, our perimeter defender will immediately open up. We would prefer his tail, his rear, to be towards the baseline. So that way he can see everything. He's going to get low, wide, big, and be active uh, and be about 50-50 between his man and the low post and just jabbing at the post. He's not helping down on the post yet. He's just jabbing at the post in that 50-50 position. Now, if I'm guarding a great shooter, I might be in 60-40 where I'm a little bit closer to my man than I normally would be. If I'm guarding a guy yeah. who can't shoot, I might be 60-40 towards the post player, a little bit closer to him in that initial choke position. And we're just trying to – you can imagine, we're just trying to take all of our, our uh, perimeter defenders and choke that post and make him feel uncomfortable. Now, if he puts the ball on the floor, then we're going after the ball. We don't care if we rake down or whatever, you go after the ball – and we've got to get the ball out of there. That's nine one one. That's code red. So that's our base way. But Matt, we, we rarely guard the low post in that manner with perimeter helpers. Uh, once we we'll do that the first week, maybe ten to twelve days of practice. And after okay. that, we're we double every pass in the post, and we double every pass in the post, big to big. And that's always a designated uh, – it's the other post defender helper. And if you don't have another post, it's going to be the guy that we have in that position guarding one of your perimeters that's your least effective scoring offensive uh, perimeter scorer, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, and, and then at times you deny – the offensive player who fed the ball to the post, you hard deny him getting that back and not always dig.
1: Absolutely. So when we do double the post and this is one of the reasons that once we go to doubling, we rarely. And I say rarely and emphasize rarely will then choke and dig because you're teaching two divergent principles there. You know, one where we're choking to the ball and the next one where we're not, we're wanting to deny it back out. We think it's imperative that when we are doubling and we call that red, our post trap is red when we're reading the post. Um, you, you can't let that, you can't make that feed and then let the pulse just immediately throw it right back out because then you're screwing up all your rotations on the help side of us coming down and doubling and getting into our help positions, which I'll go over in just a second. So when that pass goes in, we're immediately denying. Now we call it quarter deny. And what I mean by that is we're getting underneath on the baseline side and we're just putting a quarter of our body in a denial position. The reason we're not going full denial, where we would have our back and our rear facing the ball, is I don't want to give up a back cut to the baseline. And remember, no back cuts, so we're going to keep everything in front of us. And if he throws it out over top of us, you know, towards half court, that's fine. We've, uh, we've taken – he's going to have to make a lob pass and get it there, so we've taken away – we call it a strike pass when you're throwing strikes at us. We want to force you to throw wild pitches and bad passes. So that's a slower pass that we can recover to. And we've won. We got the ball out of there. We got the ball out of the post. Now on the feed immediately, our closest perimeter to the baseline is getting to the restricted circle. And he must prevent anybody from cutting between the ball and him. And we tell him, Brother, you can't go down there and be a nice little fluffy poodle. You got to go down there and be a pit bull, man. You got to go down there and fight, claw, scratch, dig. And it's about, you know, we tell post players to begin with when you're guarding in the post, it's like a knife fight in a ditch. You know, there ain't nowhere to go. It's mano a mano, and somebody's going to come out of winter. And it's really the same thing for that guy that's, and we call that our rim defender, that lowest perimeter guy. He's our rim defender that. When he sprints to get there, he cannot allow anybody to cut between him and the ball. Our next perimeter is getting into the nail hole area first. And he's checking to make sure nobody's cutting behind him. And then he becomes an interceptor. He's really trying to read that post player's eyes and take away any bad pass he might try to make to the top or across the court. Um, and obviously on the pass, our other post player was coming and we say high and hard and making that 45 degree, well, it's not, it's a 90 degree uh, trap on the post. We um, have changed this through the years depending upon our leg and what our leg's really good at. This past year, we found that our leg wanted to dribble us out and then make a quick pass, which led to another quick pass, which put us, our defense, at risk. So what we found with the league that we are in this year here at Arkansas-Fort Smith, it was much more applicable to us to trap. And then if the post player tried to dribble the ball out, then we immediately, the post traps off and everybody's recovering.
0: That's great detail because no matter what level you coach, you need different packages to guard opposing post players determining on their skill level and what actions they're trying to accomplish against your defense. Now I'd like to talk about screening, especially the cross screen on the blocks and then go into other screening techniques.
1: We want to guard them all the same as much as we possibly can. So we call any, any block-to-block cross screen, it's a V move. Now let's, let's talk about our help defender. In this case, it would be the defender guarding the cutter. So anytime somebody tries to cut in the, you know, through paint, you know, a flash post to the ball in the lane, in the pack, we're taking that cut away. We do not want to allow that cut. So we're denying that cut. So if a screen's coming, your first step is going to be high and taking the high cut away. You don't want to allow that offensive player to cut high and catch the ball inside the pack. Okay, so you're 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 up on the high side of the cutter. Now here comes the screen. The screen comes. You want to arch. And let's talk about the cutter defender first. And it, we call it a V move. You want So it's going to be in the right. shape of a V. You've went to high side. Here comes the screen. You want to arch your back and get over the screen. And so the cutter goes low now meet him on the other side and take that cut away. If he went high, then you're in great position to take the cut away cuz you're there. Now, our our screener defender. When your man leaves to go screen, the first thing you got to do is call that out. We say E L O early loud often. I want to hear screen, screen, screen loud, three times loud, loud. And then we're going to open up and we're going to put two eyes to the basketball our numbers to the basketball, and try to keep at least our fingers touching the spine or the hip, the hip of the screener. And by being in that open position and tilted, if you can use your imagination there, tilted, we have helped take that low cut away. And then we use the terminology, see your man through. So if the cutter, if my man gets hung up on the screen and i got to give additional help, and I do that because we're not going to allow that pass into the low post area.
0: Okay. No, that's good. Very detailed. And I, I think the listeners can picture that in their minds. What about ball screens? And maybe it determines if it's at the top, on the wings. Let's talk about ball screens for a minute. You know, it used to be we might guard
1: 10 to 20 ball screens in a game, and now it's like we're guarding the 75 to 100 ball screens in a game. So, consequently, one of the things we do early on with our defense is – We set up ball screen scenarios and how we want to guard them. Let me say a couple things about guarding ball screens and then we'll get into the specifics. I think uh you've got to make a decision on what you want to take away. For us, we we do not want to allow the ball to beat us. We've made a conscious decision. We do not want to allow the ball to beat us. So our whole focus is take the ball out of the equation and make somebody else have to become a shooter who hopefully is uncomfortable being a shooter in that scenario. Obviously communication is of paramount importance and our team must understand that this is not a two-man deal. This is a five-man proposition. We will guard all side ball screens hard shown. That's our base way of guarding it. So it's a momentary trap. That trap stays for two of our steps. Two of our post players' steps, (coughs) excuse me. Um, We guard all middle ball screens, level show. So we're at the level of the screen. We get over top of all ball screens with the ball defender. And we have three uh, teaching points for our ball defender always. We just say body up, body in, body over. Body up. Means that we get up into the ball as soon as we know we're going to be ball screen. Because if you play off the ball, you become a screen magnet. You're going to get sucked into that screen and give up a shot. I don't like, and some guys teach it and they're really good at it, but I don't like going underneath the screen. Because you go underneath the screen and the screener rolls into you and they don't call it and all of a sudden he's got a downhill drive or pull up jump shot. And now you've let the ball beat you, which we're trying to take away. So we get over top of all of them. So our second, it was body up, body in, is force the ball into the screen. So wherever that screen's occurring, we're forcing the ball into the screen. So a side ball screen that would occur on the right-hand side of the floor, we're going to force the ball to go middle in that situation because we're going to force the ball into the screen, into our helper, into the trap. As our man goes out the hard show, two steps, we're going over the screen and under a man. We just say over, under, go over the screen, under your man, get over, under, get to the other side and reestablish. Um, on level show, basically it's the same way, except there is one little caveat to that. We try to get into the balls hip pocket. I want to be, we're literally, we're behind him and we have both hands up so that he can't throw it back and we've eliminated that half of the court. Because that's what a lot of teams are doing on the middle ball screen is they want to hit that shake man coming out of the corner, the lift man coming out of the corner for a shot. So by getting in his hip pocket, we take that away and we have a momentary trap with our post player, whose level show we're just doing it east-west instead of north-south. The reason we do it with the middle ball screen east-west is because it's too tight a quarter's to the rim, and if we went hard show there two steps, it's too hard for us to get back and take a layup away. Now, it depends on your personnel. We have defended the middle ball screen in certain years with certain personnel with a one-step hard show where we get over under just like we would on a side ball screen, Uh, but it's a one-step hard show, not a level show. That's it, that's all we do with ball screens. So hard show them on the side, level show them in the middle, Level shows step up ball screens going to the baseline. Our counter to that is the switch. And that's the only two ways that we're going to guard those suckers. And so why would we switch? All right. So you put you've got a four man who's just an outstanding shooter that is setting that middle ball screen. And we're not going to be able to stunt and recover to you uh, in time to take that away. And that guy's just a shooter. He's not really looking to take advantage of a mismatch and post anyway. So that would be a good opportunity for us to switch. And and hopefully we have a four, and that's assuming we do, a four-man defender that can keep that ball in front of him and our ball defender who can switch it into the four and contest shots. And we only do that if absolutely necessary because we don't like to switch in that scenario.
0: Right. No, that's good. That's good. Because I know a lot of coaches are are thinking about the pick and pop, the switch and, and things of that nature. I
1: will say this, man. I think a big part on the pick and pop on the middle ball screen, it's your ability to stunt. So my, um, my, the, the side the ball is leaving that becomes my stunt man. So if they want to pick and pop that uh, the screener, I'm going to take a one to one and a half hard step towards him and yell help and then recover back into my gap, which buys time for my screener defender to recover. If he's a really good shooter, I'm going to make a straight line recovery. If he's not a really good shooter, I'm going to seek leverage and recover. And so then again, it becomes down to knowing who you're guarding and what his game is. If it's a side ball screen, then we fly switch it. And that fits hand in hand with our trap in the low post. That simply means that we're going to be a hard show. They take the ball off the screen. I don't want my screener defender having to discern, do I sprint to the rim to take the roll away? Do I hold up and see if he's going to pass it so I can take away the pick and pop on the side of the floor? I want him always sprinting to the rim to take that away. So we slide our other post player over, uh, and if they try to throw that pick and pop, then he's going on the pass to close out. And we call that a fly switch because we're switching on the fly.
0: No, that's good. I love that terminology. What about dribble handoffs? Is some of that guarded the same way you guard a screen? Do you ever decide to switch a dribble handoff?
1: Any dribble handoffs that occur on the perimeter, we're going to slide those. And uh, so we're going to get off to under, Uh, two removed is what I should say. That's probably a better way to describe it. So if that, if if your ball handler is going right handed again to that wing that's on the right side and he's going to hand it off to that wing my uh wing defender is going to slide between the ball and his man who's outside of the ball my ball defender is going to allow that uh man who's taking getting ready to take the hand off to slide between him and his man does that make sense
0: Yeah, no, it does.
1: A key teaching point for us there is once we get through the handoff, we must step up and take away the middle. And initially, again, we would be forcing back. We would be forcing it to the sideline because that's where our help is. I think a key teaching point in the pack is to understand where your help is. Always know where your help is. And we just do that momentarily because what are teams trying to do on the handoff? They want to turn the corner and get the paint. We want to take that away, and that's what we're doing with that. If they're really good at shooting behind the screen, then we may switch it. That's something, again, we don't like to do, but we may do that. And if it's a stationary part of a set play, you know, like a it, with a post player, say that they hit a post player who was on the, you know, trail position, and he drives it down to hand it off to a wing, then we would guard it as we would a ball screen. And then here's the key. We want to guard them all the same. If we can guard them all the same, then we feel that gives us an opportunity to continue to improve as the season goes along.
0: No, that's good. And I know you said earlier it's a system. It's not a set of drills. But, if again, I think like a high school coach because I am one. But if a high school coach is listening, they want to move to this. What are some of the foundational drills to really uh, cement this in with their players
1: and my thing is, I just don't want to have a whole lot of drills. And the reason for that is, right. is again, it's about mental toughness. And, and I hear guys, and I get it, you know, they're saying, hey, I want to have all the, you know, I want to have 20 drills that are going to teach the same skill because uh, I want to keep my guys fresh. And I get that. But, you know, I want – I would rather deal with the boredom of the repetition because that builds mental toughness, and mental toughness is what we're trying to get and as you well know uh repetition is 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 the oldest but still yet the most effective teaching method there is and so we're going to do basically the same drills we're doing in August we'll be doing in march um, close out drills, obviously the you know one on one close outs, two on one close outs two-on-two two closeouts, those are, uh, of you, you can't, cl- I know coaches say, well, I do it every, I, I do this drill every, there's, there's nothing you, you probably do every day, but I'll tell you this, we do closeouts every day, and I'm sincere about that, we do some form, it could be partner closeouts, which are just form, it could be live closeouts, but we're going to do some form of closeouts every single day, um, You know, one of our staple drills to work on uh, getting our gaps and forcing the next pass is three-on-three closeouts. We'll start all three defensive players uh, in the lane. Uh, They must have a foot in paint. We'll start our three offensive players on the perimeter outside the NBA arc. Coach throws to one of them. Uh, The three defenders must close out then. Obviously, one's going to close out to the ball. One's going to close out to a gap, possibly two to a gap, and one to help, um, depending on where the ball is thrown to. Just for drill's sake, we'll usually say that you can't drive the first pass because now that makes them pass at once, and that gets us a key teaching point in the pack is your ability to get from on the ball to off the ball as quickly as possible. You can't slide. You can't meander. You've got to sprint to get there. You got to sprint to get from on the ball to your gap. You got to sprint to get, and we call it exploding out of the gap, to get from your gap, exploding out of the pack, to get from your gap to the ball. You've got to get there. And we simply tell our guys that you can be in two places at once, and we want you there on the catch. Um, So we'll make them make that pass. And then you can set up parameters, whatever it is you're trying to emphasize. Like, for instance, you can say offense, you can only shoot a layup. So now your defense is like guarding drivers, guarding guys who are rondos, or are only drivers, and we have to work to really keep the ball to paint. You could say only threes today, and so now you're closing out the guys, all those three-point shooters. Usually if we do that, we limit the offense to two, two dribbles and maybe even one dribble max. Um, you could do paint touches, which is more game-like, where if they can beat you, get some piece of their body or the ball to paint, and kick it out, now you gotta be able to get out to that shooter and contest him. Uh, You could just do it straight up live and not have any restrictions. You could add a post player. You could add screening uh, situations. You could add ball screen situations. So that becomes uh, an important drill for us. Obviously, ball screen, which we've already mentioned, that we do a lot of four on four. I like four on four to make it tougher. But it is important that you do a lot of 5-on-5. Five five. I will say this, that we like to start practices. You know, Maybe we do a little bit of uh, skill development initially. Um, but then we're going to get right into some defensive skill development. And usually uh, some type of 5-on-5 five five walkthrough scenario. So what we're doing at 5-on-5 five five is maybe we'll set up, okay, they're going to run a side ball screen. They're going to do it out of conversion by hitting their trailer. He makes a pass to the wing and follows that for a ball screen. So we'll set that up, and we'll defend it walking through it. Then we defend it going live but with no shot. So it's like a shell drill. And then we'll turn it over and have the other team guard it and go all the way through with everybody having to do that. Love starting practices like that just to put something in their mind, this is what we're going to guard. And then maybe go to three or four of our breakdown drills <laughs> for ball screen situations. Um, uh, so we did the three on three, and now like I like four on four closeouts where we just have a coach at the top of the floor with the ball. We've got four offensive players, four defenders that are all under gaps, and the coach will pass it or he can drive it at a gap defender and pass it. Then the coach is out and we're live. Love four on four change drill and five on five change, where we're really trying to simulate in the half court area, converting from offense to defense and defense to offense. Um, it'd probably be two I could describe it if you want me to, uh, but it's a little bit detailed. And then one of the conversion drills that we two of them that we really love is our three on three get back drill, where we're just playing three on three and um. Uh, Shot goes up, defense rebounds. If the defense rebounds it, the rebounder, and we reward the rebounder, again, emphasizing defensive rebounding, he's going to throw it to an outlet man. He's out of the drill. Those three are taking the ball down the court as hard as they can go. The three guys that are on offense are sprinting back on defense, and you just let that sucker go until you're happy with it. Initially, we'll just go up down the floor one or two times before I stop it. But we'll get you know into the second or third week of practice. We might be going six, seven, eight minutes of that drill before I stop it. And then a drill that we started doing a couple of years ago that I really like, we call 5 on 4 uh, conversion. We're going to take uh, four defensive players, and we're going to have five offensive players attacking them in the half court. We're going to take a fifth defensive player and we're going to put him on the sideline about the coach's box, usually a post player. When the shot goes up from the offensive team, that fifth guy that we put on the sideline will release and sprint to the other rim, the opposite side rim, uh, symbolizing a run out by a post player. So, we get a couple different things out of that. Let me digress for a second. The five offensive players that are attacking the four, obviously, the offense has a great advantage. You can let your defense do whatever you want them to do. You can put them in a zone. You could put them in odd front zone and even front, two-two so zone or a one-two-one one zone. You could put them in a you know a box situation with three triangle defenders and somebody guarding somebody man. You could tell them, hey, you're guarding man and scrambling do whatever you want to do. And I love that for our offensive team because it gets them working against things they might see in a combination, you know, boxing one, triangling two, different zones, different things like that. So when the shot goes up, our two get back guys must get back on the rise of the shot so that we've got a guy getting back to take away that post runner that was releasing early. Our other man's getting back to the top of the key, as we said. Our three rebounders are going to go rebound. If they can get a rebound, great. But if not, then they're sprinting back. And now we're playing conversion defense against that defensive team that is converting the offense with the release man. We'll go ahead and play that back one more time to the original starting point, 5-on-5. But I love that drill, and you can set it up. You might want to take a wing as a release guy and put him on the sideline. Uh, Maybe it's a team that really likes to throw the ball ahead you know, like a Carolina break situation. Uh, You can take two players if you wanted to and put them on the sideline and play it, you know, five versus three. So it's just whatever you want to do to work on whatever opponent you're facing. Uh, That's been a really good drill for us to take away offensive conversion. So those are just a few of our base things um, that we'll do. Again, we don't do a lot of drills, uh, but we do... We're going to work on those things that we have to defend the most.
0: A couple more questions, and again, thanks for sharing uh, in detail about the pack line. I really appreciate that. Oh,
1: this has been fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Vance Wahlberg on a couple of days ago, and he talked so much about his dribble drive in very good detail, and then you talk about pack line. and I just want coaches to get some deep dives into some of this stuff. Absolutely. But a couple more questions. Uh, what are some of the – actions that can be the most difficult to guard
1: well i think probably the most difficult thing to guard is uh coach Walberg that you had you know on the uh on the other day you said um with the dribble drive and the dribble drive when they when they triple and double gap you so for instance let's say they've got a guard two guards on top in those uh high elbow spots and they've got um you know, two wings that are drifted down to the corners to create as much space as possible. And maybe they make a guard-to-guard pass. So let's just say the guard in the left uh, elbow passes the guard in the right elbow. And that that corner man comes up to the wing uh, on that right side. And that left guard cuts through and assumes that corner position on the right corner. Mm -hmm. So now you've got the guy in the right high elbow, back guard with the basketball, and the left corner filled, but nobody between. And so that's a heck of a gap, you know, for a guy to guard, particularly if when he catches it, he's thinking downhill hard. So, again, remember we talked about knowing where your help is, and that's important in the pack. And it's something you've got to drill a little bit in practice. We'll just set up a four-on-four situation to simulate when we're playing a uh, a dribble-drive team. So uh, that we force the ball back to our help, and we don't let him take it left-handed and drive it into that double or triple gap area. We, and if he does drive it because we're making him go the other way, we're already in a good position to take it away
0: so if i just want to push it back towards the help and i just want to i don't want to open my hips up do i just want to move my chin to his right shoulder just a little bit of movement outside shoulder his left be his shoulder, left yeah.
1: shoulder in that right in that, in that case I, so i'd move my chin to his left shoulder if i have you know yeah and I'm, I'm not and I'm probably give a little bit more cushion to understand that he's gonna to try to drive that sucker hard downhill that that would bring me to a question that I get often, is okay. I'm a high school coach and I don't have a shot clock. You know, would you run the pack line defense? Well, the first thing I tell all high school coaches is you do have a shot clock, and they say, "I'll oh, know, coach. Um, I don't have a shot clock in my state." Yeah, you do. It's eight minutes long. You've 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 got a shot clock, uh, which you know, they don't want. They don't like hearing that. But anyway, um, I understand that. So. The shot clock is a tremendous benefit to the defense and it's a tremendous benefit to packline defenses so if I didn't have a shot clock in high school, I would play an alternate defense and I would make sure it was a defense that wasn't man oriented because I wouldn't want to teach divergent principles so I would make it zone in nature and it'd probably be like a one three one or a one two two or two, two, one, some some kind of half court trap that I could disrupt the offense if they were trying to hold the basketball uh, early on against my
0: team. I would say in all my years of coaching high school, teams usually fire the shot up in about three or four passes. You'll get that really patient team from time to time, but I've rarely had an occasion where um a team will hold the ball, for example, the example we always see. But it happens from time to time for sure. And you've got to have a way to put pressure on them and trap and make them uncomfortable. But, no, that's good. Well, Coach, man, thanks a lot for coming on. Any last points about the pack line that you want to give to the listener that I didn't hit on?
1: No, I think we've covered quite a bit. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And I will say this. If someone listens and they have a question they want to send my way, I'd be more than happy to answer that question. They can email me uh, at jim j i m dot b o o n e at u a f s, which is the University of Arkansas Fort Smith dot edu. So, jim dot at u a f s dot e d u, and I'd be happy to answer any question that that you might have.
0: Perfect coach. And before you leave, I've got to ask you about something else you're really good at and that's grilling.
1: (laughs) I don't know about that one.
0: Well, in this day where we're all at home, like I I'm trying ribs and pork chops. I've got a smoker out back. Just share with us a couple of your favorite things to smoke. You don't have to get into great detail or anything, but what are you, what are you going to this time of year as we're at home for many hours a day? Uh, What's your
1: go-to? I, I love smoking anything just about, uh, particularly, <laughs> I mean, obviously meats. But um, today, for instance, I've got ribs and a pork butt on. Uh, nice. So excited about that, which will be tonight's uh, tonight's dinner. But brisket is one of my favorites. It's a tough one. It's a long, long cook. Uh, but also, I tell you what I really like, too, is chicken, uh, particularly smoking chicken and something i've become my family's become really fond of is the uh, alabama white sauce it's kind of a different uh approach to the uh to to grilling and smoking chicken uh you know that they they used in alabama it's not good on too many other things but boy it's something else on chicken
0: now do you put it on while it's smoking or is that after uh you
1: can you can glaze it at the end of your uh at the end of your cook um, i'm going to tell you it, you can do it then and it's really good like dunk it you know if you're doing pieces like thighs you can dunk them in the uh, white sauce and put them back on and let it glaze but another thing that's really good is to uh do whole chicken and then pull the chicken have pulled chicken and then drizzle the uh, white sauce over it and uh serve sandwiches man that's big time
0: that's good that it's about lunchtime here in uh, Georgia. It gives me something to do for the rest of the weekend. But, hey, Coach, thanks a lot. I'll put all your information in the show notes about your Twitter and your email. And thanks a lot for a deep dive into the pack line defense. And I wish you and your team well. And I hope we can all get on the floor again and spend time with the players that we miss so much.
1: Coach, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and allowing me to talk about something I love, uh, you know, our defensive play in basketball. It's always good to talk ball. This has been a good chance to do that. Thank you.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the United Basketball Podcast. I hope you'll listen again to future episodes.